Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm so thrilled to be joined today by Tessa Hadley, who is the author of seven highly acclaimed novels, including Clever Girl and The Past, as well as three short story collections. Her stories appear regularly in The New Yorker. She lives in Cardiff, and her latest novel is called Free Love. Welcome, Tessa. Maris, it's lovely to be here with you, even if only meeting virtually. Absolutely. Tessa, your your new novel is called Free Love, which is a title that comes with a lot of preconceptions and expectations. Tell me about how, how you chose that and how you either go along with the idea of free love or subvert it. Well, with a title, I mean, it takes ages to yeah. get the right title for a novel. In fact, often one's living with half or two thirds of the novel in a state of some anxiety, trying out one wrong title after another and trying to persuade yourself that it's okay, that it works. But what you know is when you get the right title, it, the whole novel will seem to fall into place in a new way, as it were, underneath its banner. And often what, what I love in a set of words is where there's a ready-made, like free love, that's a ready-made, but that the ready-made begs so many questions. It's so yeah. full of irony and, you know, kind of big question marks like what free love? I wonder what that would be free to who, you know, those sorts of things. So that the rich, the sort of, it, I love a ready-made. I loved it when for my very first novel, I, I thought of Accidents in the Home, which sounds like, you know, a first aid book for, yes. for in case of, you know, cutting your fingers or something. So I, again, I love the ready-made and then unpacking it. So that, that was what Free Love was about. And as soon as I got it, it just fell into my head because I was saturating myself in the 60s and the counterculture. And as soon as I got it, I knew it had all the right kind of ambiguity inside it. Yeah. Um, tell me about writing a novel that's linear, um, which is very conventional, um, yeah. you might say, and, and, but it's your first time, if I'm not mistaken. I th I th in a certain sense, I think you're right. I mean, I think some of the, uh, my earlier novels, I, I can't instantly recall how each is structured, but they actually do work chronologically, I think, but often in a slightly episodic way mm -hmm. so that it doesn't have the, the flow, the novelistic flow of this one. Um, it, it's always what I try to do because I think that the, the a sort of principle of novelistic construction should always be that it should be as simple and self-explanatory as it possibly can be. And then you take on such and such a story and it becomes apparent to you very early on that actually that story in order to work properly is going to require an odd and, and sort of slightly more complex structure. And you're going to have to play around a little bit with the chronology or a lot with the chronology. In my last novel, Late in the Day, I really did want to tell it from A to Z, but then I, so I wanted to follow through two couples from being a young foursome together to being in their fifties okay. and then, and sort of see what happened to them. And what I realized was one of the things that was going to happen was that one of them was going to die. 
the most catastrophic experiment that I could play with them in a way. And that if I was going to do that, I somehow couldn't, the way I was conceiving of the novel, have that happen three quarters of the way through. It had to happen at the beginning. And of course, that then entailed putting in all the rest of the pieces right. of their youth afterwards and all then read by the reader in the position of knowing that this shadow hangs over them which the protagonists don't know so in other words the complexities are always they come with the story and with free love that isn't how it worked really uh, it, it, I, I knew that everything I had to inside the the container of the story to spill out as it went on could come out as it were in its right order in time yeah and and when you start the novel you, you it's a great word to use it's so contained we see phyllis's life as a mm. housewife in the 1960s and um, we, we know that she's a little worldly because she's convinced her husband to enjoy meat prepared with garlic and herbs which sounds racy <laughs> yes, yes. She, she has some version of sophistication but one feels the shallowness of that partly just because it's a long time ago now so each era's sophistication is a little comical to the, the children of that era, if you like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But she, she has she has a certain sophistication, but of course it turns out that that's, it's so superficial and actually there's a great innocence in her waiting, waiting to be uncovered by, by what happens next. Yeah, yeah. And, and I love that she, in the first few pages of the novel, is concerned that she's too much in love with her younger son mm. um and this is a thing that worries her until mm. it doesn't yeah there was a rag bag of bits of pseudo freudianism that was such small change in the 60s and i think part of it was that if a mother loved her son too much i'm, I'm, I'm not really holding freud responsible for this at all <laughs> but it, I, I can remember that sort of sure. conventional wisdom being around if a mother loved her son too much he might be gay and that was feared and you i, I didn't make that very overt or explicit in phyllis but you can feel it in a few places that she's worried he's beautiful and she adores him and she feels this is bad for him and bad for her and um Partly because of that, she has accepted, partly because she's a wife to a cleverer, more complicated man in, in one sense, anyway, in the worldly sense. She's accepted the rule that says this beloved son of yours, who is your heart's treasure, is going to be, must be sent away from you to a boarding school where exactly that complexity of mother love will be unpicked in him because that's what should happen to boys and he will be turned into a man who lives apart from you. And that's immensely painful to her in a slightly inchoate way. <laughs> and and the, the, if you like, the strong story of why I've put that in there is because it, it's, it's part of the rationale, or not rationale, it isn't very rational, part of the emotional logic of what happens next is that she has this sense of impending loss of the love of her life, her little son, and without knowing it, that has made her ready for another love. And then a young man comes to dinner and in a mad moment 
they kiss in the garden and the whole of the rest of the novel sort of flows from that point. And the young man, Nikki, is is so fun to dislike. I, I feel like you used so much nuance with just about every character, but not with Nikki. Uh, that's all right. I, I'm fine with that. I, I wasn't aware of doing that. And well, I, I don't know. I don't even know that I dislike him that much, but that's just, <laughs> it, in a way, that's what you do with your characters. You put them in there. I quite like some of his swaggering. I think he's more foolish at the beginning of the book. He is. He's clumsy and a little bit insufferable. But actually, you know, having someone who comes to your dinner party and and the dad says to him, uh, Roger, Phyllis's husband, says to him, oh, what are you going to do with your life then? And he says in reply, yes. well, what are we all going to do? I don't think about my life like that. We're all going to die, aren't we? And like... <laughs> insufferable and true, true. and true. disruptive and a kind of think we need both energies in a way the the energy the, the energy of the, the conventional social surface of the small talk and lots of my sympathies are with Roger and then the energy of the disruptive refusal of the small talk so I my my sympathies are divided but I did he is meant to feel sort of impossible in that first scene and then I did enjoy what happens is that he and Phyllis get together and become lovers and I there was a moment at which I I I we see him again after a gap in which they have been together a lot and he has been turned into a much more grown-up man mm -hmm. And as I was about to write that, I thought, oh, I know what it's like. It's like James in the beginning of The Ambassadors when a 55-year-old is sent to Paris to bring back a foolish young man who's got into the snares of a, of a bad woman. And, and the first time this middle-aged man sees the young one, he can hardly recognise him. He's become beautiful, handsome, subtle, sophisticated. And the idea that a love affair could make a young man grow up Yes, and actually become more attractive. That that was fun to play with at that point. So I, I hope it becomes more more so. Okay. <laughs> I I think I reacted very strongly um, because it's a very very funny thing to have a character say the novel is dead in the beginning of your novel. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> I, I I think I've done that more th more than once in my books. I have. <laughs> clever men say that the novel is dead or the novel is for women and and I I think I I think it was in the London train where my you know the person whose eyes I'm actually looking through sees a heap of novels by his wife's bedside and thinks of them as women's books essentially interchangeable one with another he says so it's quite fun to sort of you know, get one's imaginary enemy to, to be <laughs> playful about it and and sort of sort of in insinuate him inside a woman's novel that's 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 just fun to do incredible um and and I feel like in the year 2022 it's become there we're having a moment now I think in the culture where we can discuss ambivalent motherhood more directly and it feels less transgressive than it had tell me your thoughts. 
Yeah, I wonder if that I I wonder I actually think interestingly if you read material from the 60s and 70s it's more brutal in fact mm. now that is partly because you're reading radical material which is reacting to a sort of ground base of such presumption that women will be filled with motherhood and an awful lot's happened in between i i almost think we're more nervy about it but 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 you're, you're right there there are lots of books and there have been for 20 years i mean there was rachel cusk's book yeah. i don't know how much that sort of how much that reached america but it was big here where she said how awful it was being a mother <laughs> um, more or less you know though she, I have a feeling she now her I think her daughters are now in their 20s and she has a lovely relationship with with them and has not been a disaster of a mother after all <laughs> as I know anyway um but yeah it's always a tricky electric topic isn't it and here I have my woman I think in the spirit of the 60s, almost with a heedlessness to the consequences, with less angst about what a parent's every move, including the rather drastic one of moving out, what a parent's every move will do to the psyche of her children. I, I, I actually feel they were more casual. Parenting was more casual. We're more anxious about it now. And so, but, it, but there it is, she does it. And, and women did it. Women do it, and we don't make much fuss when men do it, you know, of course. Of course. Um, one detail that really struck with me is that she could have been sobbing when she arrives in her new spot, mm. Mm. but she's laughing. Yeah. I mean, because if you're going to do the thing, you might as well do it greatly. Uh, so she does when she arrives at night in an absolute intuitive leap into the into the dark, literally in Nikki's room. I mean, they have been meeting, but this is where she leaves and it's not planned. It's it's she she in fact that very afternoon or that very evening she was thinking married arrangements are very sane, aren't they? Mm -hmm. How civilized this is, how companionable, what's wrong with it? And and then unbeknownst to herself because she hasn't got a front door key, in fact, she leaves a party, she probably would have just gone home and instead she leaves her marriage forever. I so believe in those sort of transitions. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to do it, for goodness sake, do it with style. And had she arrived in Nikki's room, sobbing her heart out and saying, you don't know how awful it feels, I feel so, I would have liked her less. Yes. And I sort of like something almost, I don't know what, I have 18th century in that moment where she knows how to inhabit the joy. If you're if you're going to jump into the unknown for the sake of joy, you might as you know, you have to be up to taking it. And then there will be all the consequences too. But sure. joyful. Um and, and it's so fun to see the swinging 60s, you might say, through through Phyllis's eyes in terms mm -hmm. of she she's confronted with a new freedom in terms of aesthetics mm, yeah the clothing and the hairstyles and the listening yeah. to bob dylan and then there's the political level that mm. she spends a great deal of the book grappling with yeah and and i, I probably almost mean those things to feel equal or to feel sure. as if they are the same thing and and I you know 
the way the way novels work, the greatness of novels is that they get everything through embodiment, through the material stuff, through the stuff inside a room or mm -hmm. the stuff of a body and the stuff of, of how people touch each other and see each other and how they move around each other. So, so it's, it's, you know, a bit like anthropology, really. So we're watching all that stuff and every single item in Phyllis's old life and then in her new life has a, a message. It's more, it is itself, but it, it, it's resonant with how it, what it means, I suppose, resonant with what it is and what it stands for and what it suggests. But I, so it isn't, but it isn't just a matter of her swapping a sort of bourgeois arts and crafts snug home for the bareness of bare boards and that delicious feeling she has of stepping into his bed. I think she says something like, like, like a naked soul shedding the world and being free. It's not, it isn't, it isn't just that. I, I really meant there to be a crux moment for her that night when Nikki rather casually in, in the small change of leftist chit chat sort of says to her, don't you realize everybody's, everybody in the West is corrupt. It's us who did it, you know, exaggerating it, by the way, that isn't exactly my politics, but I'm sure. Watching. sure. Or it's sometimes my politics, some nights that's my politics. And then some nights my politics is Rogers. And that's the great thing about novels. You don't have mm -hmm. to decide um, anyway. And, and he says those things rather carelessly. He says, don't you realize those, those nice men in suits with those safe voices and all that education who've been to the schools like your husband went to and your little boy is <laughs> going to, don't you realize they're ordering the bombings of women and children? And no, which is true, sort of true, a truth. And she sits up, he falls asleep then because that's familiar to him, but she sits up and she takes it in. Mm. And there's a naivety, you know, she is not a great political thinker. She finds as the months go on that she's not even a great political activist, but something in her is changed. She insists on it at the end of the book. She says, every cell in my body is changed. I can't go back. And her husband, who is also right, says, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. You live in the same world as me. It's the same world. You can't not be in the world. And she says, no, I can. I refuse it. And, and that, those two truths that, that cannot be reconciled, yet both seem to me to be true, are, are meant to be significant in the book. And we're meant to be sig really sympathetic to Phyllis in that moment, even while we don't think, oh my God, she's going to turn into a revolutionary and change the world. <laughs> we have irony, but we also feel something deep is happening. So I hope anyway, that's, that's how Absolutely. I wrote it. Um, and later in the novel, Roger says something like, it's easy to break things, but when you try to put them together again, that's, that's where yeah. the real work is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and th that's such a sort of resonant perception, not, not just his, of course, I've, I've half borrowed that. Um, students cutting down trees in Paris, you know, burning things mocking lecturers in the universities. There is one sense in which that impulse is sublime, refreshing, mm -hmm. you know, get rid of it all. And there's Turn another down. 
you burn everything down, start again, start from scratch. But it, it is, you know, putting things together is slow. Actually, <laughs> I think that's a, that's a beautiful observation somebody pointed me to in Stephen Jay Gould writing about nature, that mm. destruction is almost instant, but making is slow and delicate and complex. And, and that sort of deep truth that is actually a natural truth, even before it's a political and social truth, is, is very resonant for me. Absolutely. Uh, tell me a little bit about the mythology of the Everglade, which is the building where Nikki lives. Um, and it's kind of, I, I think at one point you say, anyone who's anyone in the counterculture had stayed there, which is such yeah. a funny way to put it. And I, 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 it's funny, when I first wrote that, I, I named a few names. I had Caroline Kuhn and Alexander Trochy and others. And actually that sounded, it was too explicit, so I took them out. It's a made-up place, by the way. I, and there are I was wondering. No, it's, it's nowhere. I just made it up. And there aren't that many big Art Deco buildings in London. When I sort of looked to see whether there was anywhere that looked like my imaginings, there isn't quite. There could have been. There could have been. So I loved creating that sort of Warren, which had begun in an era of it built in the tens or, or the twenties, you know, an era when it was a prosperous place. And then it, it had sort of survived into another age when Labrook Grove and Notting Hill were incredibly dilapidated and full of students and immigrants and the counterculture. And I, yeah, the sense of, of a great palace, if you like, of privilege, which has been hacked to bits and subdivided and bits fall off into the street. And I, one of the jokes that I enjoyed writing was that the lift gets stuck but nobody ever goes in the lift but I knew that if I kept saying the lift gets stuck don't use the lift the lift gets stuck apparently it gets stuck that eventually I need to put somebody in the lift and have them get stuck and I do I save it for 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 the rather awful and yet not entirely unsympathetic um Roger's sister Marnie who comes looking to deliver her terrible truths inside the Everglades and that does get stuck in the lift but only briefly um so it was just yeah it was fun to create and 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 I suppose this is going back in a way to what we were saying about how the novel's natural form is embodiment material structures material things place real places full of real furniture It, it it is like like a Jungian idea of a building as being a culture, a civilization, um, and then kind of being inhabited and re-inhabited through the ages. We don't even need Jung for that, really, because buildings just are that. Mm-hmm. A place like New York or a place like London, even more so, only because it goes back hundreds of years more, with those buildings that have been repurposed, and they were once for an all-powerful aristocracy. And then as time goes on, they become for different power-holding groups and they are subdivided and knocked about inside. Then they become museums in a whole new idea. So, yeah, the, the, the sort of the enduringness of a built fabric while the shapes and forms of a society that fills out that fabric go through one uh, metamorphosis after another, that, that's a it's a fascinating idea and, a, and another idea that's very useful for novels. Absolutely. And, and so there, when Phyllis visits the Everglades, it's, um, you get the sense that it's constant party 
everything's mm. a possibility. The, the world is opening up for her. And then she meets Barbara Jones. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because, that, I mean, and in fact, naively at first, Phyllis has been visiting Nikki in his room and passionately making love to him. And it hasn't occurred to her that anybody there could judge her or judge against her for that. She's yeah. taken for granted that they're surrounded by party people, who, a new kind of openness. And then she discovers a trainee nurse, stern, smarter than her, judging her rather harshly. It's a shock to her. It's a, it's a, it's a reproach to her, which I hope it's to Phyllis's credit, having you know been a little bit resisting at first, she takes on in the long run and makes Barbara and she become guarded, com have a complicated friendship. Barbara is a, a nurse who came over with so many young black women when the National Health Service in Britain newly set up after the Second World War, uh, made its appeal to the Commonwealth and asked for young women in the West Indies to come back and um, run our health service for us or people, the staff, our health service, which of course those women and their daughters and their granddaughters and great-granddaughters still do. We depend on them. Um, and Barbara's life is so different. It's, there's a moment when Phyllis's daughter Colette is studying for her exams just about thinking she might still bother to do them, though really <laughs> she's about to jettison the safe trajectory forwards into university and just follow her mother as to a certain extent into freedom. But she's revising alongside Barbara, taking her nursing exams, and, and Colette sees that the fact that one of them is playing and for the other it is a life or death barrier that has to be worked for, study for, and, and, and overcome, that that is not a matter of personality. <laughs> right. It's a matter of where are you coming from? What, what, is, what are your opportunities? For Barbara, these passing her nursing exams is an essential, life-saving advancement forward into the only kind of freedom that at present is available for her. Whereas Colette has her free choices. She can play at passing her exams or not passing them. Right, right. And, and Barbara's aspirations aren't mm -hmm. about sex or love or Yes, because Phyllis is always trying to tease her and say, uh, surely you like him, don't you like him? I think he loves you. And Barbara knows that's the way she mustn't go. That would be so easy get a baby now and yeah she's seen girls around her do exactly that when she daydreams she's very guarded but she lets out at one point that she does have a daydream and it's of herself in an office with shelves full of books and papers and herself writing and her name on the door and a maid brings her a cup of coffee and so freedom that's that's her idea of freedom and fulfillment and yeah, how that that's sort of in the book as a as a check as a, or as a, not a reproach that would be you know too pious, but but you need always a counter story and a counterweight to to the, mm -hmm. the, the dynamics and the energies that you set up in a book. So that's what that's there for. And and it just of course just I didn't think it out nearly as um, <laughs> kind of mechanically as that. She occurred to me imaginatively, but I knew the book needed her.
I don't want to talk too much about the end because um, there's a lot to spoil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I had a wicked secret up my sleeve. <laughs> Incredible. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about a little bit the, the trajectory of Phyllis and Nikki's relationship in that even from page, what, 20, when they first kiss, hmm. the reader has a sense that perhaps they're not going to be lifelong companions. Yeah, it's, it's not real. It's, it is a love story, but the point of the novel is not love. And I am certainly not saying, ah, life could be so sad <laughs> and boring and ordinary unless you meet your soulmate and then everything will be all right. Sort of obviously I'm not saying that. And I, I did want to signal from the beginning that, I mean, when they do kiss, first of all, you have Phyllis. I, I sort of comment that there's something almost a little uh, sort of mad in how she immediately thinks this is my lover. Mm -hmm. it, what she needed at that point, she's, she's too hungry. She lands on it and he becomes that thing. Equally, I have him slightly thinking, Oh my goodness, what just happened? How did that happen? Really? What does she mean by it? Watch out, you know? So there's, there is no sense of planets colliding and a sort of glorious future. And, and the whole book, I hope, opens out from that moment to be much more than just their story. It's the whole family story. And then it's the whole of that world story. And they, they sort of, I, I knew when I thought of it, that I had to go the whole way. I had to have a passionate, extraordinary, sexy affair. Mm -hmm. I had to put that on the page. But I also knew that was in a way disposable. That as the book wore on, you can feel the bonds loosening. I mean, from quite early on, one of the ways that Phyllis sophisticates Nicky, not, not exactly intending to, but that's <laughs> what happens, is that he starts really looking erotically at other women, which I think is probably quite plausible. And, and so we feel a little warning bell ringing there. He's <laughs> not going to be faithful to her. They, there isn't even an ethics of faithfulness. And, and then we, we sort of, rather than, I, I certainly didn't want to crush Phyllis. That would have been a horrible way to end the book, just have yes. her discarded and finished. I knew she wouldn't be, I knew she was, what I liked about her was her resilience and her, her courage in a way, a sort of slightly crazy courage. And I knew that she wouldn't regret what she'd done and that she would almost go further and further into her freedom, which is kind of what happens. Um, it has occurred to me that those two flats which she buys for pennies on a mortgage that her friend Sam helps her to uh, it's all right by the time she's in her old age they'll be worth an absolute <laughs> <laughs> she'll, she'll be okay she's an old lady she can retire comfortably she can retire comfortably she isn't actually <laughs> going to end up um, homeless on the streets with all her goods in carrier bags I don't think she's got too much resourcefulness she learns she does learn to be free and it isn't it isn't freedom through love, exactly. Indeed. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Before we go, would you like to recommend some books for us, please? 
Well, I've been reading some wonderful books, actually, because I've been judging a prize here in the UK called the Folio Prize. So it, it's always both bad and good to judge a prize, but bad when the boxes of books arrive mm -hmm. in your hallway. But lovely because it forces you out of your comfort zone, though actually, come to think of it, the two books, two of the books I've loved best, which I'm going to recommend, I had in, I'd read them anyway, because I <laughs> love two writers. So one of them is, um, is, is Sanjeev Sahota, S-A-H-O-T-A. -A. He's a marvellous British writer, um, lives in the North. And this, I think it's loosely the story of his great-grandmother who was married in the Punjab um, in the 20s. Three very young girls were married to three brothers in a village and literally the three girls did not, they watched, they, they were veiled all the time and they were commanded to a marriage room, you know, every so often he'll meet you there tonight. Right. But they did not know which of the men that they yeah. saw and served was their husband. And all I can tell you is that our heroine, a, an extraordinary, resourceful, intelligent girl, gets the wrong, <laughs> believes that the wrong one is her husband through certain mistakes and the consequences that follow are rather magnificent. And it's also, there's, there's an element of the story set in the present. So that's a marvelous book, China Room by Sanjeev Sahota. China Room. And then an, another marvelous writer uh, who doesn't write enough, Claire Keegan, mostly a short story writer. She's Irish. She broods on her marvelous short stories and novellas or very short novels for years, it seems. And then a, a gem comes out. And this one is called Small Things Like These. And it's set in, a, in an island of the sort of, I think it's the 70s or the 80s. And it's a, a very moral tale in a way. I, I, I really think it is. That's a funny thing to say about a book. I'm not sure I would normally like a moral tale, but I love this. It's a very, very decent man married with three daughters with a business that is a stress and a strain in a tiny, a small town world who finds a girl who is being abused by the nuns at a local sort of, you know, mothers and babies home of which we have read so much recently. And he, well, I, I, I won't say what happens because that would spoil it. It's very short and it's intense. It burns a hole in your mind. It's a, a beautiful book. I love that. Tessa, thank you so much. Free love out in America now. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.